This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Spirit of Leadership, Liberating the Leader in Each of Us by Harrison Owen in 1999. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 9. The Third Function of Leadership, Sustaining Spirit with Structure Gathering and focusing spirit is the first act of leadership, but if left at that point, spirit will once again dissipate and disperse. Unless it is channeled for the long haul, spirit raised by vision and fused in the collective story will fly apart. Organizational structure is the pathway of spirit, and growing appropriate structure is the third function of leadership. Creating organizational structure is probably what we in the West do best, at least we spend the most time on it. We pay a price for our fixation, however, for all too often structure is seen to be the only thing in an organization. At worst, this leads to the denial of spirit, which cuts us off from the true source of organizational power. Even under the best circumstances, our obsession with structure causes us to build structure first and then to try to squeeze the spirit into it. Architects understood some time ago that form follows function. In short, it is worthwhile to consider what you are going to do in a building before you build it. In a similar way, structure follows spirit, and to reverse the order is to invite disaster. Creating structure before attending to spirit is like buying a pair of shoes without measuring your feet. It is possible that the shoes will fit, but it is much more likely that they will either pinch or fall off. Thus, while there are many possible organizational structures, there is no right one in the abstract. There are only appropriate ones, appropriate to the flow of spirit in the particular organization. The current fascination with round, flat, participatory organizations certainly has much to commend it, but it would be a mistake to think that steeply ranked, hierarchical structure is no longer ever appropriate. Hierarchies can and do work under circumstances where the quality of spirit and the nature of the job at hand fit that particular way of being. For example, when putting out a fire with a bucket brigade, participatory management is not a good idea. Someone needs to give the orders, and that person is usually the chief. Not only is there no one right structure, but there also may actually be several useful ones, operational at the same time as I discovered to my surprise while working with a client. When I first started organizing with this organization chart, I asked the CEO for a copy of the organizational chart. He smiled at my question, and just as I was about to say something about knowing that it was probably out of date, he broke in to tell me that they didn't have an organizational chart. They, they actually had about 20 of them. The organization's business involved some 20 different major projects, each having, some, each having very different needs at different times. The organization had literally been reconfigured to fit the needs of each project and the needs of those who were going to do each job. Although this approach might seem to be a recipe for confusion, my client had discovered that organizational charts were really useful for only two groups of people, customers and new employees. The former needed the chart in order to know who to call with a question, while the latter found it a useful security blanket while figuring out their place. Everyone else pretty well knew what was going on and felt quite comfortable concentrating on their job. So for every job there was a chart, available to the customer and to new employees. 
Because the customer was usually interested, interested in only one job, and the new employee would typically be working on only one job, the fact that there were other organizational charts was a matter of neither knowledge nor concern. Growing Appropriate Structure We may learn a lot about growing appropriate structure from the experience of those who built many of the new university campuses in the United States. It was often the case that these campuses, designed by landscape architects, were stronger on aesthetic appeal than on utility, especially when it came to walkways. The architects, seeking balance and symmetry, or whatever other design criteria they might, they might have had in their heads, laid out the walkways on which the students would presumably travel. After the campuses opened, however, it quickly became apparent that the elegant designs bore little relationship to the actual flow patterns of the students. The result was the creation of muddy pathways going in just about any direction except the ones the architect had in mind. The erection of fences and walls to channel the errant students usually had little effect, and what started out as a marvelous idea became a mess. Then one day, a blinding flash of the obvious occurred. Don't put in any pathways until you see which way the folks are going to travel. The initial period in this experiment was certainly a mess, but probably no worse than the alternative, in which the prescribed pathways were ignored while the adjacent lawns were destroyed. But given a little time, the tracks were laid down, and all that remained was to pave them. Structure followed flow. Building structure to fit and support spirit is a laudable undertaking, but it requires the ability to track spirit. Using the analogy of the college campus, how do we determine the footprints of spirit in order to be able to pave the pathway into a serviceable all-weather road? The answer, surprise, lies in the stories we tell. A small consulting group tells a story about a mad dash to the airport. The offices of the group are located about five miles from the local airport, and as with many consulting groups, the airport was the beginning and the end of almost everything. On one occasion, a senior consultant began the bad dash. With minutes to spare, he arrived at the airport only to discover that the nearby parking lots were full. There was nothing to do but throw caution to the wind, break the sound barrier, to say nothing of local speed limits, and head for the satellite parking lot. The consultant quickly found a parking place, which fortunately was located near the bus stop. Wonder of wonders, a bus was there. Grabbing his bag, he raced to the bus, proud that he could still make his flight, but the driver had gone on a coffee break. However, the keys were in the ignition, and not wasting a moment, he settled into the driver's seat and drove to the terminal. Looking neither to the right nor to the left, he parked and made his flight. With stories like that, it is not difficult to sense the flow of spirit in the consulting group, a flow that accomplished much, but had little if any tolerance for elaborate, bureaucratic procedure. Not surprisingly, such structure that they had was honored mostly in its avoidance, and while they constantly vowed to get themselves organized, the truth of the matter was that they were well organized in a fashion that suited the flow of their spirit perfectly. Structure, Time, and Space An organization structure is a unique time-space configuration for that place. Within very broad limits, however, it is spirit that defines time and space, and not the reverse. When it appears that spirit has become a prisoner of time and space, that is typically a matter of choice or ignorance. Obviously, there are limits set by the duration of biological life and planetary existence. Sooner or later, each of us will pass away, even as all of us will cease when the sun goes out. 
We do not have much choice about that, but the limits imposed are fairly broad. By the same token, additional limits are imposed by other people's time and space, the structure of other constellations of spirit. But the acceptance of those limits is always a matter of choice. By default or by conscious intention, we choose the time and space in which our spirit exists. Most of the time, unfortunately, the availability of choice remains beyond awareness, and we feel trapped. Occasionally, this will create amusing situations, particularly when we realize how we have become our own worst enemies. Creating Time Several years ago, I was leading a five-day conference that was unusual by virtue of the fact that it had absolutely no formal agenda or timetable, except as the group of 100 chose to create one. At the beginning, people knew only when we opened, when we closed, and the overall theme. This minimal format was, of course, open space technology, and the occasion was the first instance of its use. The conference began with an agenda-setting process, in which all participants were encouraged to identify the areas of interest they would like to explore around the given topic. These interest areas were given short titles and posted on the wall, and all parties were invited to indicate their selection by signing up on the appropriate card. Time and space, or when and where... Arrangements were proposed by the initiators and negotiated with the potential participants. In something less than half an hour, or an hour and a half, the group of 100 was ready for business. The first day of the conference flowed with almost military precision. Working groups met at the times and places specified, and business got done. That evening, however, we had a small party, and the next morning, the conferees were more than a little slow to line up at the starting gate. In fact, by the time we had all assembled, the official starting time of 9 a.m. had long since passed. And then, of course, coffee had to be drunk and morning greetings exchanged. While all of this was taking place, I noticed one of the participants becoming more and more agitated. It seemed that she had scheduled her group to meet at 11 o'clock, and sensing the domino effect, she pleaded with me to stop all the chatter and get on with business. For reasons approaching malice aforethought, I resisted her suggestion, if only because I felt that the coffee and morning greetings were essential to counteract the effects of the night before. The group finally got together at just about 11 a.m. As for the agitated participant, concern had given way to anger with apoplexy near at hand. When the time seemed right, I asked all the participants to take out their watches and announced that, for those who cared, the time was precisely 9 o'clock. The immediate reaction was quizzical, followed by confusion, and eventually round-faced grins. We had all learned that time is what you make it. The third immutable principle would apply. Whenever it starts is the right time. When spirit is trapped in a time inappropriate to itself and the functions to be performed, the results can range from mild discomfiture to total system breakdown. Different Times Western travelers to other cultures often find the nature of time there not to their liking. Everything, from the Western point of view, is late, slow, or never happens at all. Until one's internal clock is reset and one becomes used to the operative story, manana, and spirit, the net result is no small amount of frustration and occasionally disaster. By the same token, people from other cultures attempting to operate under the Western sense of time will experience similar difficulty. Once I attended an international congress in Mexico on organizational development. 
For reasons now obscure to me, the Mexicans had gotten the idea that to run a proper conference, they had to follow the Western rules. Accordingly, they prepared a statement of five conference norms, which were prominently displayed on the screen at the beginning of the conference and at the start of each day. Among the norms was the announcement, we will start all sessions on time. It will not surprise any non-Westerner or anyone who has worked in a non-Western environment to learn that no session, not the first, the last, nor any in the middle, ever began on time. No matter how often the norm was enunciated, everything started when it was ready, and not when the clock pointed to a particular hour. What was surprising, or at least instructive, was that no matter when events started, everything of importance appeared to have been accomplished. In fact, more could have been accomplished had time not been spent trying to get everything to start on time. The conference had its own internal sense of rhythm, which was highly productive and had little to do with the clock. When I mentioned this, all of this to my hosts, they smiled enigmatically. But I did notice that as the conference progressed, the organizers began to treat the announcement more as a joke than as an expected behavior. In doing this, I believe that they honored the shape of the conference spirit with a time that was appropriate. At the very least, they became observably more comfortable with their time as opposed to the right time, for their time was the right time. Many times. The truth of the matter is that there are many times, each one appropriate to the spirit of a given place and the job that needs to get done. When a little thought or with a little thought and effort, it is quite possible to move from one time to another. I am told that there is a small town somewhere in the American Midwest that for reasons of its own runs on two totally different times without problem. This particular town, as many such places, is laid out around the intersection of two highways, one running north to south and the other running east to west. For half of the year, the whole town runs on the same time, but come daylight savings time, things change because of the needs of the people and their work. On the east side of, of town, a large dairy cooperative serves the local dairy farming community. On the west side of town, there is a small manufacturing plant that distributes its product all over the country. When daylight savings time comes in the spring, the west side of town makes the shift easily. Indeed, those who work in the plant have to shift in order to be aligned with their customers and suppliers who are also on the new time. Those on the east side of town, whose lives revolve around the dairy cooperative, have another consideration. While humans can easily switch the hands of a clock, Cows operate rather differently. Milking time happens when it is time to milk. Thus, the time in the East is milk time, not clock time. Daylight savings never happens in the East, and the town has two times. Under most circumstances, having two times is not a difficulty, except at lunch. It seems that the town's only restaurant is located at the highway junction, and for luncheon partners from opposite sides of the town, it is essential to specify not only what time they will meet, but also whose time they have in mind. So there has developed the local convention of fast time and slow time. I can't remember which one is which, but all the locals can, and life moves in an orderly way. Their time is appropriate to spirit. Space and spirit. Just as time is very often taken as a given, Immutable reality, so also is space. Spirit may then become a prisoner of space instead of space being the appropriate site for spirit and its activities. 
Almost everyone has had the experience of walking into drab surroundings and feeling his or her or her spirit sag. When gray walls seem to close in from any point of view, the likelihood of spirited enterprise is remote indeed. But it is a mistake to presume that bigger is better or that fresh paint will automatically make spirits soar. While it is true that pleasant surroundings appear to have a positive impact on productivity, the connection is neither automatic nor necessary. The critical issue is always appropriateness. The case in point was the glistening new office building that became the regional headquarters for Apex Corporation. Apex was and is a dynamic, fast-growing, high-tech firm specializing in computer applications for the military. Their original office facilities were notable for just about anything but glitz. They, uh, they occupied cramped space over a Chinese laundry across the street from Harry's Bar. The history of the company's growth could easily be traced by observing the marks of old walls left indelibly imprinted in the floor. As projects came and went, walls were removed and moved, and space, albeit cramped, was created to meet needs. But no matter what was done, there never seemed to be enough space. People were falling all over each other, but surprisingly, that condition was left a problem was less a problem than a benefit. The close proximity turned out to produce a rich working environment in which productive interchange was almost inescapable. The walls themselves became icons of history. Pert charts, cartoons, and naughty and irreverent inscriptions bounded the space with colors and shapes unique to Apex's history. The highs and lows of past engagements served as reminders and challenges for the tasks at hand. When really important work had to be, be done, requiring the best from everybody, Harry's Bar was more often than not the site of choice. What could not or would not get done in the normal working space moved across the street. Then the decision was made to change the space. As it happened, a local real estate developer had some land on which he was prepared to erect the grandest building ever seen, at least in that part of the world. Seven stories tall, or thereabouts, with a soaring lobby and a glass-enclosed elevator rising in the center, it was nothing if not grand, but it certainly was not apex. Formerly, close working colleagues found themselves separated by whole floors, and even on the same floor, running shoes were appropriate. Contrasted with the old situation, where everybody knew each other and what they were doing, the new building created an environment in which people were frank to admit that they had never even been into the furthest reaches. And as far as knowing who worked there, that was beyond any direct knowledge. Harry's Bar, of course, was a thing of the past, and when people went out, they tended to disperse across the countryside in search of good food, regardless of the lack of good fellowship. The move changed the spirit at Apex. One might argue, of course, that the march of progress, if such it was, would quickly outweigh whatever discomfiture of spirit had been created. And in the long term, it may well be that the glorious new building would not only look more businesslike, but would actually foster such behavior. In the interim, however, it was quite clear that Apex had lost a valued connection with its history. New employees would now enter an environment that looked a lot like every other high-tech organization. The special nuances, to say nothing of the mess, that made Apex Apex were nowhere to be seen. Creating Positive Space The creation of appropriate space for spirit always begins with spirit. 
Although aesthetic and other generalized design criteria apply, they must always be related to the spirit of a place and not to abstract thoughts about the right way to do things. A strong example appeared during the close down of a 50-year-old plant. The plant in question was located in Southern California, and for more than half a century, it produced a familiar line of products for a Fortune 500 corporation. In addition, it was the center of life for three generations. More than a job, the plant and the associations that developed around it created a social fabric that gave meaning and community to those who shared in it. From baseball games to skiing trips, life for many people began and ended with the plant. Then suddenly, the plant closed down. Rising real estate value and taxes coupled with stringent environmental restraints and an aging technology made it certain that the numbers would never come out right. It was nobody's fault in particular, and the decision to close was inevitable. Unlike many plant closings, this one was done with a degree of humanity and intentionality that set it apart. A full 15 months before the gates were to close, all employees were told what was going on. In addition to providing the people with plenty of time to make the necessary adjustments in their lives, the company committed itself to a level of support during the process of transition that some might find unbelievable. Not only were people offered transfers or generous severance packages, but they were also provided with the time and guidance necessary to create their own futures. The plant manager intentionally created a learning community that became known as the University of the Future. Open to everybody, from senior managers to forklift drivers, the University of the Future provided the standard fare of classes on resume writing and interviewing skills, and it went significantly beyond. Seminars were offered on organizations in transformation, transition management, creating small businesses, using your intuitive self, and a number of other topic, topics that conventional wisdom might deem at or beyond the edge of the frivolous. The university of the future and the spirit engendered there required space to happen. Part of the space was supplied by various hotels where off-site seminars were conducted, but on the home campus, the focal point was the Technical Skills Development Center. This center was located on a corner of the plant property and was fitted with offices and classrooms. It therefore seemed to be the only choice. Outplacement and training staffs were quartered there, and it was expected that people needing services would make the short trip across the parking lot to the facility. That expectation turned out to be ill-founded, or at the very least, the level of business was nothing like what might have been predicted. It was not that the place was uncomfortable, unattractive, or basically unsuited for the purpose. Rather, the trip across the parking lot was more than a short walk. For first-timers, it ended up being the very long journey to the end of their careers at the plant. Even though everybody knew that the plant would close and that the future lay elsewhere, that knowledge was exquisitely painful and not to be dwelled upon. For many, the pain of ending was such that a million reasons could always be found for not making the trip across the parking lot. And even when the trip was initiated, it was not uncommon to see it aborted halfway there. Walking through the parking lot almost guaranteed meeting friends with whom it was all too easy to stop and pass the time while avoiding the sorrow. The center was the right place for many good and practical reasons, but it was not appropriate to the spirit. Another space offered itself, not so much by design as by happenstance, which is often the way with space fitting to spirit. 
in the rush for close down, a special order involving hand packing, a large amount of the plant's product, had been pushed further and further back on the agenda of things to do. That continued to be the situation until a young manager saw an opportunity in the problem. She had noticed that with the advent of closed down and despite the operation of the University of the Future, time was hanging heavy on the hands of many employees. Worse than that, it was silent time. For reasons of embarrassment or fear, a lot of people simply were not talking through their plans and feelings. The manager reasoned that if she could just get people doing something together, the time would pass faster and they would also have the occasion to talk. So, the MASH project was born, an acronym for Make Amazing Stuff Happen. The actual arrangement was anything but business as usual. Everybody in the plant, from senior management on down, was invited to wrap product. Indeed, they were often recruited as they walked in the door in the morning or on their way out at the end of the day. The only conditions were that folks must come in pairs. Upon arrival, participants were initiated into the MASH team and given t-shirts as a sign of their union. Music, usually rock, formed the background and decorations of all sorts festooned the otherwise drab environment. Prizes were to be awarded to the super rappers and the overall champion team would get the tape recorder on which the music had been played. When things started, spirit was definitely up and so it continued for the best part of the month. The product was wrapped in record time, and, as predicted, people found the needed time to talk. The MASH site became a magic place where people continued to gather long after the project had ended. When it came time to put on a job fair for those still looking for their next act, the MASH area was the site of choice. In retrospect, it is clear why that area became as powerful as it did. It was in the plant and not at the end of a long walk. It was familiar turf to everybody, although it had been made special by the decorations and the music, and most especially by virtue of the quality of spirit that had been encountered there. By almost any standard, the MASH site would have been the last place to locate the university of the future, but the truth of the matter is that it was, or became, totally appropriate to spirit. Creating the book, or space of a different sort. The appropriate space for spirit does not always have to be between four walls. It may also be between two covers. In the case of the plant closing, a book was designed to provide an opportunity for all to honor their past, consider their present, and shape their future. When one thinks of writing a book, it is usual to name the theme, determine the structure, and gather the content with a single person, otherwise known as the author, in charge. In this case, only the theme was named, and then everybody in the plant, even those who had left, were invited to contribute whatever they thought to be relevant under the general headings of our past, our present, and our future. The structure emerged from the content, and the author was a three-person editorial committee who put it all together in two days. Getting a large number of people to contribute to a book is no small task, particularly when they are divided by work shifts and the geography of the plant. The added pressures of close down made it especially difficult. Thus, a space of a different sort was required, which might be called electronic space. Utilizing the computer conferencing system of the corporation, which could be accessed through a large number of terminals in the plant, or by phone from basically anywhere in the world, an anywhere, anytime space was created that people could enter at their pleasure. 
and enter they did. The offerings ranged from wonderful tales of the early days to thoughtful pieces reconsidering the approach to close down in which the lessons being learned were summarized. While the book, as it came to be known, would certainly not find a place on the bestseller list, it was probably more important to the people in the plant than a blockbuster could ever be. The book represented the structured repository of the spirit they had known during a most critical period of their lives. On the day the plant closed, copies were available for everyone. Conceptual Space, The Geometry of Our Minds The discussion so far has generally and intentionally avoided the more usual topics considered under the heading of organizational structure, such as organizational charts, chains of command, and the like. The primary reason is practical. It is much easier to illustrate the appropriateness of structure to spirit with such earthy tales as MASH. But organizational charts, in whatever form, are also essential. They represent a different sort of space and time, which we might call conceptual. Such things exist only in our thoughts, although the pieces of paper on which they are drawn can serve as useful reminders of what we had in mind. To speak of an organizational chart is to speak of pure abstraction. The geometry we hold in our minds, through which we understand the functions of our organizations, is potent indeed. And like more physical indicators of time and space, it as easily can become a prison as an aid to the spirit. When our mental geometry describes a multi-layered approach with checkpoints at every level, we will inevitably perceive the top as being a long way off in the journey there to be difficult and dangerous. Change that geometry into round or spherical, and suddenly all points become a lot more accessible. Transform the organizational geometry one more time from single-centered to multi-centered, and in an instant, there is no longer a top or center at all. The permanence of the organizational geometry lies not in its abstraction, but rather in its concrete application. Placing the CEO at the top of the organizational chart is very often made concrete by locating the executive suite on the upper floors of the building. At that point, the mental journey up the chart becomes a very physical one up the elevator or stairs. It may be that the view is better or that the space is more comfortable, but even when that is not the case, the mental geometry apparently persists. The executive suite of OCF, for example, occupies the 28th floor of a corporate office building in Toledo that has a nasty tendency to sway in high winds to the point of causing seasickness. Given the fact that Toledo is located but a short distance from the Great Lakes, from which the winds blow very strongly and often, meeting senior staff displaying various shades of green is not an unknown experience. Despite the fact that the geometry of the organization often assumes the permanence of stone, it remains an abstraction, useful when it channels spirit in productive directions, but stultifying or destructive when it does not. Should negative aspects appear, particularly when the structure has been cast in concrete and steel, it is natural but unnecessary to treat the result as an immutable given. Structure is and remains an abstraction from spirit and therefore is unchangeable or is changeable, even as the mind can change. And when the mind changes, even the corporate edifice can be altered. Growing Structure, the Role of Leadership 
If you consider the stories just presented about the emergence of appropriate structure, time and space, for spirit, it may appear that structure was most effective when it arrived late. When problems arose, they were associated with pre-existing or arbitrarily imposed structure. Thus, in the plant closed down, although the skills development center possessed the requisite physical characteristics, it never really made it as the focal point for the university of the future. Instead, the scruffy old shipping room became the critical center of spirit. One might also conclude that structure is not necessary, and that would be totally erroneous. Structure is the essential pathway of spirit, but to fulfill that function, it must always follow spirit's footprints. It must be appropriate to spirit. Allowing and encouraging appropriate structure to emerge is a critical function of leadership, and one that cannot be undertaken lightly. At this point, it is probably clearer about what not to do. Above all else, do not impose structure arbitrarily. There is no such thing as the right structure, no matter what the current fads may suggest. The function of leadership is to grow structure, not to impose it. The process is an organic evolutionary one, the work of a gardener, not a mechanic. Growing structure starts with open space and open time, precisely the sort of space in which spirit appears. Working in open space. Working in open space is not without its problems, particularly for those who equate leadership with control. For them, it may appear that open space is nothing. And how can you control anything with nothing? This was four-star Admiral Harry Train's question as he became the executive director of Future of Hampton Roads, FHR, Incorporated. FHR emerged as the guiding organization from a massive project of spirit building undertaken in Southeast Virginia. In that part of the world, there are nine cities, such as Newport News, Norfolk, and Virginia Beach, the home of 1.2 million people, and four counties that had spent, spent the better part of 300 years either ignoring each other or in hostile combat. Eventually, a small group of private sector leaders came to the conclusion that they were shooting themselves in the foot. Although they sat on some of the finest real estate on the East Coast, little positive growth occurred because all the available energy was devoted to fighting. With some help from me, they resolved to make a change that involved creating a positive vision for the future and essentially telling a new tale for the region. How they proceeded is a long story, but succeed they did with some very remarkable results. For example, they managed to move their region from being rated the 149th marketplace in the U.S. to the top 50 category as number 29. Early in this project, the community leaders created FHR as a base of operations and recruited the Admiral to direct it. As Admiral Train and I were sitting outside the boardroom waiting for the board to make their selection official, he looked over at me and said, Harrison, what have you gotten me into? I am not sure that my answer really helped him, but I said, quote, Well, Admiral, it is rather like being given the whole U.S. Army, which at that point had roughly 1.2 million people, which for its total history had been operating as 13 autonomous and hostile units, with the assignment of getting all the troops together without a shred of line authority, end quote. The Admiral replied simply, Oh. To his undying credit, the admiral succeeded beyond what even he would have admitted was the wildest of dreams, and he did it by learning to operate in open space. Open space is a far different beast, 
with very different rules from the strict hierarchical structure the Admiral had left as commander of the Atlantic Fleet, in which things supposedly got done through command and control. Open space is an open space precisely because it is bounded. It is bounded by the central vision that establishes the context within which activity may take place. We are talking about this product and this market as opposed to all others. Furthermore, the boundary of open space is strengthened and clarified as the collective story is woven, giving color and shape to what might take place. So, open space has a certain shape and location, if you will, but its critical quality is the absence of a mess of stuff inside. Open space stands as an invitation, a big, attractive, and doable invitation for spirit to enter and grow. There is, however, one fast and unfailing method for killing spirit, to prematurely fill the space with a mess of stuff. Filling space is almost irresistible. Forget, for the moment, whatever, that whatever needs leadership might be experiencing in terms of getting themselves organized and appearing to know what they are doing. The press from the outside is almost overwhelming. All those who have been attracted to the vision and empowered through the collective story will understandably want to get the show on the road. And more often than not, they will want somebody to tell them what to do. The normal form for telling is a lengthy list of missions, goals, and objectives set in a rigid timetable with appropriate authority and responsibility established. There will come a time for telling, but if it comes too soon, the spirit will die. Leadership must honor the space and avoid telling until it is the right time. Remember the third immutable principle? There is no magic formula for determining the right time. It is always a fine judgment call, balanced between, between premature closure, which will kill, kill spirit, and unending delay, which will dissipate spirit. But if there is any rule of thumb, it is something like, wait as long as you can stand it, then wait just a little bit more. Nature abhors a vacuum, and people want to fill up open space with structure, so if error is to be made, err on the side of openness. If vision is clear and the collective tale well told, the manifestation of structure will occur at the right time with amazing rapidity. Contrary to popular wisdom, which views the structuring of an organization as an unending, difficult task, it is almost pathetically easy when the conditions are right. For example, the 40-odd private sector leaders involved in FHR created an effective organizational structure for the organization on day one. 24 hours later, it was a legal entity with bylaws, bank account, and a board of directors. When the spirit was up and clear, structure happens. Indeed, if there is any difficulty at all in the articulation of structure, that should be taken as prima facie evidence that the time was not right. Structural decisions, like good wine, spoil when taken ahead of their time. From Leadership to Management When the time is right and structure emerges, the mode of operation passes from leadership to management. The, the importance of management, good management, cannot be overemphasized, but management has its place. Leadership liberates and management controls. Leadership operates in open space, and management operates the system. Leadership invokes and invites spirit to lay down new footprints. Management paves the path and keeps the troops on schedule and on the road. Appropriate structure increases focus while removing eddies, distractions, and obstacles. 
it allows for all available energy to be targeted on the task at hand, which is what productivity and profits are all about. Rather than engaging in endless reinventions of the wheel, good structure and good management ensure that the task at hand is accomplished within resources and on schedule, with something left over for the bottom line. Management is essential. It is worthwhile remembering that management works only in a given context and where there is general agreement as to what the context is. Should the context change or the agreement fail to exist, it is a whole new ballgame. Managers control, that is their job. Control, in turn, depends on the ability to measure. As the old saying reminds us, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Measurement, however, always depends on the context from which it is calibrated. Place a Western manager in a third world context and he or she will often complain that nothing happens on time. Right thought, but no agreed upon context. The problem is not that things do not happen on time, but rather that there is no agreement on what time is. Listening to current conversations, it seems that we may have gotten ourselves into a totally non-productive discussion, even argument, about leadership and management. At worst, it appears that one or the other is the only thing, and nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, leadership and management constitute a polarity or continuum that does not allow for either-or thinking. Both and is the rule, although there are times when one side will predominate. In stable times, when environments tend to remain constant and systems are not constantly stressed or destroyed, However, when the environment radically alters and systems are incessantly thrown into the chaos of open space, leadership must come to the fore. We have experienced a number of years characterized by reasonable stability, and for understandable reasons, management has been the dominant mode. The fruits of good management are everywhere apparent in the remarkable advance of productivity and efficiency. But it is safe to say that the times have changed and that the global context is being reset. At such a time, we all experience the open space of ending and opportunity. The old structures give way, and time and space must be redefined to fit the new manifestations of spirit. All observable signs suggest that now is the time of leadership, and indeed, genuine leadership is required, but it must be leadership linked to good management. The rapid passage of events has so foreshortened the life cycles of our organizations that leadership and management must hold together. Conceptually, this means abolishing the notion that there are leaders and managers. The fact that some individuals are more comfortable in one mode or the other does not obviate the necessity for each of us to lead and manage, while simultaneously being acutely aware of the context. As the context changes, so must the mode of our operation. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.